if we are giving early access to our VIP customers, we're also taking a group of people that haven't you know, earned that status already, but they're indicating that they probably will and going ahead and giving it to them because we want to make sure that we're retaining them. It gives us a better chance to engage them and sort of wrap our arms around them early and make sure that they kind of fulfill their destiny as that high LTV VIP customer that we think that they're going to be. Hello and welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Kristen Ma, Senior Vice President of Growth at Saks. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. Looking for clean, reliable data that you can trust? Segment collects, cleans, and allows you to activate your data in real time across hundreds of applications and channels. Learn about how Segment can help you personalize customer experiences by visiting segment.com. Technology is pervasive. In fact, according to Deloitte, on average, U.S. households have more than 20 connected devices. Nowadays, customers who share their data digitally expect that information is transferred to help inform the in-store experience. In order to meet this expectation for omni-channel personalization and retain customers, marketers like Kristen Ma are finding innovative ways to structure in-store conversations around digital data. In this episode, Kristen and I dig into customer DNA, marrying online data and in-store experience, and using predictive analytics to give a VIP status to customers who have yet to earn it. So with me today, I'm really excited. I have Kristen Ma. She's the Senior Vice President of Growth at Saks. Kristen, you're responsible for growth, retention marketing, in particular, the online category growth. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your career journey in your own words. Sure. So I actually started my career in the nonprofit sector, which is a whole other story probably, but I found myself sort of ending up going to business school thinking about doing some different things and switched paths to consulting, went to McKinsey, where I worked primarily on CPG companies, retailers, and within marketing, as well as some other functions. And I think that's where I really found my love for consumer brands, talking to the customer, thinking about the customer. And so from there, when I was ready to leave consulting and sort of move into an operating role, um, knew that's part of what I wanted. And so that's when I first came to Saks or, or broadly our HBC, our, our parent company, about eight years ago. And since then have held a bunch of different roles across marketing and e-commerce and found myself you know, in this role, which you know is a super cool role that I have today. It's sort of a lot of different touch points with the customer of, you know, being the team that within media needs to go find the customers and sort of get them initially to the website. And then once they're there, my team is responsible for, you know, everything from the page that they might drop onto from a linking strategy perspective to what are the arrays look like? What's high and low in the array? And and how do we make sure we're getting them the best possible products for them as quickly as possible on the site experience? And then how do we bring them back? So retention marketing, which for us is a lot of email, but also SMS and push notifications within our app, trying to sort of think about re-engaging the customer and bringing them back in. So lots of different parts of their journey that we get to kind of play with and experiment with. 
That's so great. So you're really seeing the customer journey from the inception of we're getting these customers in the door and then actually nurturing them to be long-term high-value customers for you. I imagine you see a lot of trends kind of come and go as it relates to the way that the macro environment and customers are kind of impacting some of your strategies. I want to start maybe by touching on some of those If you could, are there any macro trends that you think are currently related to customer experience in luxury and retail? Yeah, I think it's hard to think about macro trends without the sort of centering on the current economic environment and just how volatile sort of that has been for the last couple of years. And I think there's obviously a mix between COVID and the economic environment and how that changed spending and customer sentiment. But, you know, we're super interested in understanding how those things are fluctuating and and in particular for the luxury consumer, because I think they move at a, a little bit of a different pace from the general population. And so obviously are are watching that very closely. We also have a luxury pulse survey that we do quarterly where we're trying to reach out to our customer base and sort of use them as a sounding board to understand how are they feeling so we can match that up against what the business looks like, what we're seeing in, you know, sales and traffic, what they're saying and what we're sort of hearing from other companies, general reports and things like that. And so, you know, we started doing that during COVID so that we could get a sense of what are our customers thinking? Where, where are their heads at? And it's been interesting to kind of watch the attitudes evolve. And there's nothing that's been totally different from what we have seen generally. But I think there are really interesting things that are kind of trends that are coming out, right? So in our most recent version of the survey, we saw 62% of our customers that they plan to spend the same or more on luxury than in the prior three months, but that's down from 68% in September. So seeing that sort of trend change, like 62% still seem, you know, it's more than half, it's a majority, but seeing that attitude sort of shift pre-holiday versus post-holiday and kind of watching how that trend is moving is really important for us. I think on the other hand, we're seeing more of them are saying that they're planning a trip than they were on the last time we spoke with them. So people's priorities are changing and how they're thinking about spending, which is helpful for us to know. And you know, of course, we would have had a vacation edit. Regardless, we do that every year. Everybody, people always go on vacation at certain times of year. So we would always have had that. But I think it's helpful for us to understand, okay, they're thinking of spending less, but vacation is something that's really important. So let's lean into that even more than maybe we would have. That's so interesting. And in retail, seasonality is so incredibly important. I imagine right now, you're catching a lot of the spring breaker or opera ski folks that you want to serve up those particular outfits to. I'm also wondering a little bit more about, you know, you're doing surveys, right? So you're taking actually their information, what they're directly telling you. Are you also seeing consumer behaviors change over time? Anything that you would want to highlight directly related to maybe not necessarily directly the survey work, but anything else? A couple of things. One, I would say sort of not related to the surveys, but kind of telling us the same things as the surveys. We look at obviously what people are buying. So we have a pretty wide range of price points and aesthetics and brands. And so seeing how people are sort of migrating up and down that price 
chain. You know, typically we are seeing that when you would expect people are more willing to buy higher price point designer items, that is when they're more willing to buy them. And and we are seeing that trend sort of follow what people are saying, which is interesting. We know that, you know, most people, their full closet is not designer. They're mixing things even as part of one outfit, they're mixing high and low. And so we do see people's purchases sort of lean one way or the other, depending on the economy. And then I think sort of separate from willingness and sentiment around spend, I think, you know, we're also seeing just generally the attitudes that customers have and their expectations have been changing over a little bit longer period of time. You know, I think, again, sort of feels like it's linked back to COVID and when things really changed in a lot of ways for people, but maybe it was, you know, it was probably coming anyway. You Are know, you the desire digitization, perhaps the move to digital channels? It's this combination of move to digital channels, but also some of the, you know, social media that's become more popular, the desire for brands to care about values that their customers care about and and comment on social issues. And and all of that, I think, is sort of melding into this place where the expectation is that that brands are going to be engaging in two-way dialogue with customers and that they want to see themselves reflected. And there are a lot of ways that can happen. And and I think that's something that we're certainly watching because I think, is it creators and moving into more of the like creator driven content? Is it web three and and communities built around web three and engaging that way? Live stream content where literally you can ask questions and have conversations with for us, whether it's designers or buyers or fashion office and engaging directly, or even just commenting like TikTok, for example, there's probably just as robust a conversation in the comments as in the original posts themselves. And so there is this culture of expectation and and willingness and desire to kind of interact both ways. And and I think our customers want to be heard. And so we are sort of dabbling to different degrees in all of those spaces and trying to kind of figure out what's the best way for our customers? How do they want to interact? But knowing that that is certainly a trend that feels like it has built up a lot of steam and we're going to need to participate probably in many of those ways going forward. That's super interesting. I love that you're kind of zoning in on this like proliferation of all of these different channels that have been created in the past five to 10 years, TikTok seeming to have a meteoric rise in the past Mm -hmm. four alone. And one of the things too that you mentioned was kind of like this new focus on ESG and making sure that you're committing back to the values of your customers and really highlighting that your brand really aligns with what folks are interested in. And and that enables that two-way dialogue that you you were talking about. I think this kind of taps into something that we talk about sometimes here, which is just creating those personalized digital experiences. So mm-hmm. are there any strategies that you would want to talk about in particular that Saks is employing around this? Yeah, for sure. So personalization, I think for us, is really critical because when you think about the number of brands, categories, items that we have on the site as a house of many brands, it's really necessary for us to be able to use personalization to deliver to people something that reflects their personal style, things that they're interested in. Because 
otherwise, I think there's a possibility that they'll get lost on the site. You know, we have over 150,000 styles on the site today. How do you find the combination that's right for you? And I'm confident for people who are coming to the site, we have the combination, but we have to kind of pull that together for them and help them find it really quickly and without a lot of work. So we have been building for a long time personalization initiatives to help make sure that we're doing that. I think the first frontier of that for us has been email. And we've done a lot of work there. And at this point, over 90% of our email communications have a personalization element to them. And that's versus like 10% a few years ago. So we've really ramped up that content and tried to figure out how to make it look different as well. So it's not the same product strips over and over again. It's how do we use personalization in a bunch of different ways to make people feel like the content that they're getting from us is curated and makes sense for them. And so I think fortunately, because we have stores, we have online, we have a pretty big customer base. We've collected a lot of data over the years and our fantastic analytics team has created something that we call customer DNA. So that sort of, you know, internally it's someone's DNA is their brand preferences, their category preferences, but also how do they like to engage? Are they an app shopper or a desktop shopper? Are they, yeah, yeah, what channels are they responding to? And so trying to understand like, who is this person as as a customer, as a shopper to us? And then we also supplement that first party DNA with predictions. So because of the number of customers we have, they've been able to model, you know, someone who looks like this from a data perspective, if they were introduced to this brand or this category would probably be interested. And so I think that's, you know, a super interesting addition and and added value that we really have because who doesn't want someone to say, oh, I noticed that you really love these three brands there's this other brand you probably haven't even ever heard of and you would love them as well. And so why don't you give those that a try? And so we're kind of adding those things, you know, within their DNA of what we think that they would like, because we're going to assume that if they try it, they will. And then we're layering on top of that, what are their current actions? So one of my favorite examples, because I think it's so darn helpful is, you know, sometimes we run out of stock of things. We have popular item. And we might not have your size or we might have sold out of it completely. And you can add to wait list, which is helpful because if it comes back in stock, you'll get a notification. But, you know, we kind of stepped back and thought about what is the customer telling us when they're waitlisting this bag, for example. And I think it's, you know, we know, well, hey, they're telling us they want to buy a bag. Yeah, um, they're pretty in the good indicator. <laughs> And these are some of the characteristics. This is the color. This is the price point. This is the designer. This is the shape. And we can take that information and say, well, maybe this bag will come back in stock. And if it does, we'll definitely let them know. But it might not ever come back because sometimes there are limited runs and, you know, often, you know, the seasons move on and then there's something else that comes in. And so since they're looking for a bag today, how can we help them find things that based on what they told us they're looking for right now, but also all the other things we know about them and and what they like, what can we suggest to them that's the most helpful that's in stock now that they can buy if they want something right away? As a customer, I love it. For the bottom line, it probably helps too. You know, like you're probably driving some incremental dollars that might not have existed before if you didn't have a lot of those items in stock. I love this initiative. Customer DNA, 
And really what you're talking about is predictive analytics and being able to make inferences on what your Mm -hmm. audience is are going to be interested in based off of that behavior, which is the strongest signal. You know, you said, what is the bag color? Oh, maybe they want a black bag. Okay. You know, let's, let's send that out. I think that oftentimes when we think about personalization, we always try to get to the end state of like, we need to be real time. We need to be like to the place where you are, frankly, like you got to 90%, which is incredible. And I think a lot of people just maybe need to start with like, they looked at these items. So send them uh, an email with these items in it and see what happens, you know? hundred percent. And that's where we started. We started there. We started with, they left it in their cart. Let's remind them, you Classic. know, the, the things that most brands start with. But I think a few years ago, we actually thought we were like, okay, we've done it. We've added all of the triggers. You know, these are the common behaviors that we see and where people fall off or, you know, new arrivals. We've added a a notification on new arrivals and we're kind of done. And then I think we sort of pushed ourselves over the hump of like, there's more that we can infer and more that we can sort of add to what they might be looking for before they tell us, hey, this is what I'm looking for. Exactly. You know, we're continuing to test and try to roll out new things that expand on that idea. That's incredibly cool. And I love that you stated that because you're right. I think that, you know, when you're starting this, you're probably thinking about a couple of use cases. I want to get to X. And once you get there, that's great. You finish that project. But you know, the way that you can find maturity within collecting data and then building new use cases off of that and advancing in this kind of curve, it's kind of endless, which is a little bit daunting, but really interesting. Yeah, for sure. I think it is. It's an iterative process where we see, you know, what people are responding to and what seems to make the most difference. And then think about like, okay, what are other things that are like this that we could build off of. And I think we keep coming up with new ideas. So it is really endless. That's great. So your teams brought together a whole lot of data sources to actually get to this point where you're building these really incredible segmentations and audiences and developing predictive models to be able to move people along in their journey. That takes a whole lot of pretty clean, pretty good data. So I'm wondering if you would have a definition for us of what good data means at Saks. Yes, you're so right. <laughs> and and we find, <laughs> I will caveat, we'll find sometimes it's not clean, right? Like of course. people share accounts, you know, a whole family might be ordering something on one person's login. Yes. People are buying gifts. And oh, so- yeah. Same household <laughs> stuff is very, very hard or multiple email addresses. Like, yeah, that's- Tricky stuff. My work, my personal. Some a lot of our customers have stylists that they work with. And sometimes their stylists order things for them. So certainly it's not perfect, not totally clean, but I think of course that's the aspiration. You know, clean, reliable, structured in a way that's ingestible. Um, you know, we have a lot of entry points for data that we could be collecting. And so some of that's easier to fold into our database than others. And then I think, you know, the last thing is data that we can use to find actionable insights. So sometimes data is just data for the sake of data and you don't, you're collecting it and you might not know how you're going to use it, but the data that's really important and good is that, that we can sort of have an insight about and use in, in, in some kind of way. I think that's the key is, is everybody can collect data and anybody can collect a lot of data. There's no shortage of that. It's being able to take it 
and activate it and make it meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. Like using it in the field. I love that you're kind of defining that it also just needs to be reliable and structured. I think structured. that was something <laughs> that piqued my interest. And if I may, just like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining you probably have a lot of in-store associates, stylists mm -hmm. wandering around, having in-person conversations with people. Is there a way that you structure those conversations to build that into some of the behavioral data that you're collecting in digital channels? There is. We have figured out a great way to help arm the store associates with information about what the customers are shopping online. That's awesome. A lot of customers will look online and then end up going into store and saying, I want to try on these things. But, you know, people do research online before they go into a store. And so we are able to capture more of that data about what, you know, putting the pieces together for a store stylist who works with customers in the store. If that customer is buying things online or browsing things online, in many cases, we find they expect their associate to know what they're yes. looking at. They expect them to know, oh, I bought this online, but you probably know that. And so we're trying to marry those things up and I think have gotten to a pretty good place in terms of being able to share that data for the customers who we know are really attached to a stylist in the stores and working with them on a regular basis. We're finding mechanisms to be able to share that so that we're meeting their expectation because it really is an expectation that they have. Talk about a changing consumer demand. You know, it's, <laughs> could you have predicted that 10 years ago, somebody would have come into your store and assumed that you knew everything about their online behavior? They would have looked at you like you were like you were absolutely nuts. But that's kind of where we are today, especially in yeah. retail in particular. Finance is another one where you're walking into a bank and you probably expect that they know something about you. And it's such trusted relationships that you're building in a luxury brand. So that's really, really interesting that you can marry those two together and make sure that you are serving those client needs. We just talked about a couple of them, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper to see if there were other tactics around customer engagement that you're deploying at Saks. One of the other tactics that I think over the last couple of years, we've really started digging into in a new way is the concept of LTV. You know, it's something that I think a lot of companies are using to try to think about customer acquisition. And, and we are using it in that way, but we're also using it in a couple of other ways where we've taken, again, the things we sort of know about customers and what their actual LTV has been and sort of modeled what are the biggest impacts on predicting higher LTV. And so, you know, this is helpful in a, a bunch of ways, but one of them is. A lot of times we think about VIP customers or high value customers, and we know who they are based on what they've spent historically. But sometimes we might have a customer who's new, they've made one purchase with us, so we, we don't really know them. But if we can know from some of the behaviors around their first purchase, so what they bought, of course, brand and category, but also did they sign up for email? Did they have an account? Were they using an app? You know, have they been in a store before? All of these different things that are sort of pre-purchase behaviors, we can say they are likely to be high LTV based on the few data points that we have on them. And so instead of waiting for them to be with us for a year and prove that they're high LTV by continuing to come back and spend, let's 
help make sure that happens by treating them like a high LTV uh, VIP customer from the beginning. So if we are giving early access to product or an exclusive capsule or, you know, enhanced customer service to our VIP customers, we're also taking a group of people that haven't, you know, earned that status in quotation marks, earned the status already, but they're indicating that they probably will and going ahead and giving it to them because we want to make sure that we're retaining them. It gives us a better chance to engage them and sort of wrap our arms around them early and make sure that they kind of fulfill their destiny as that high LTV VIP customer that we think that they're going to be. So I think that's, you know, important for us, especially as we and and everybody else starts to think more about retention and making sure that we're keeping the customers that, we've acquired and, and growing their wallet share with us, knowing if you can't invest the same amount in every customer and you can't treat them all in the same way, if there are special things that you can only do for some, how do you make sure that you're extending that to customers who haven't yet demonstrated the behavior that you're looking yeah. for, but they seem like they will? This is incredibly insightful and really smart. You've gone really far into this journey to be able to say, I can predict that this person, in my language, B2B tech, a high propensity to buy and that their deal size is going to be larger than the average. I do ABM for my team. And so those are the exact types of accounts that we try to go after. And so I just love hearing industry to industry. We're all really thinking about very similar things and just calling it slightly different things, going about it in slightly different ways. But, you know, retail is always an inspiration because I do think that the creativity and the real relationships within retail are something that you can really find a lot of inspiration in. I have a question about if there's a time that you were looking into this data that you might have been surprised by. Is there an insight that you just would have said, yeah, I couldn't have predicted that one? So one of the things maybe that surprised us, and and it's not a huge surprise, but really interesting to see is the relative value. I think, as I was mentioning on the LTV front, being able to know the relative value of different actions a customer can take. And so kind of using that to say, we can't incentivize customers to do everything we want them to do. So we want them to download the app. We want them to sign up for email. We want them to create an account because if they're creating an account and using it, we can better personalize their emails, make sure that we're capturing things and attaching them, as we said, on the good data conversation, attaching it to the right person based on what they're putting in their account. And so we can lead with that in terms of what's the first thing we want you to do if you don't have an account, that's number one. And so what are the tactics that we can put in place across different channels and promotional activity and and what have you, special benefits on the website to get people to do that. Once they've done that, we can move on to email. And so we sort of have now a path. And I think we knew all those things were important, but we didn't know which one was the most important. And so I think that's been really cool to kind of understand and give us prioritization and marching orders for what to get customers to do to increase the likelihood we're going to retain them. You can build a journey that way. That's great. You know exactly what points you need to hit folks with what CTAs. And as a marketer, that's really helpful to have that directionally. So you're not always asking people for everything at once, as you were saying. 
piecemeal what's the most important. We'll get this one step at a time as we build that trust. think is doing it right in terms of customer engagement? Are there any folks that you look to and think that's good? Yeah. One that I have been thinking about recently is Delta. Oh yeah. Um, You're talking to a Sky <laughs> Miles member over here for sure. <laughs> so I don't have to tell you, but, but yeah, I think the airline industry is tough. I've never worked in it, but I can imagine as someone who flies, sometimes it would be tough. Um, (laughs) And tweeting at them for customer service. It's not for things they can't control hard. Yeah. Yeah. But they have really done some interesting things, I think, with trying to make something that is, I've heard them say sort of travels a means to an end. It's no one is flying because, well, very few people are flying because they like being on the airplane. They're flying because they, they need yet. to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I know a couple of people, but... Maybe in um, the 60s when it was like Lux and uh, there was a lot of smoke on the plane, I guess. But besides that... <laughs> Seems much worse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think... That is how a lot of people think about travel. And, and they've tried to make it as enjoyable as possible. And they're linking that, making it as enjoyable as possible with incentivizing people to give them data that they want and then using that data to try to improve the experience. So it's sort of this circular, it's a, a virtuous circle, you know? So they're giving people free Wi-Fi, which is something, you know, top Big. three things that you want on an airplane Big. is... Wi-Fi that works, let alone free Wi-Fi for signing up for SkyMiles. And then they're using that to personalize the experience of everything from what you are suggested to watch when you're you're sitting in your seat to connecting with the flight attendants to say, okay, in seat 17A is Kaylee. And she had a really tough experience last time she flew with us. Maybe give her a free beverage. And they'll come talk to you, use your name. It's incredible. I think it's it's something that as we think about multi-channel retailers, like it's something we all aspire to, to be able to really connect those dots and know for sure something about their last experience or preferences that they have, or even being able to use their name really makes something so much more enjoyable. And, and so I think it's a fantastic way to, to use incentives that some people really want to give them more things that they also really want and might not know that they want as much as they know they want free Wi-Fi. But I think that's, it's really cool. Some of the things that they've been rolling out. So it's a good one. I love this example too, because it highlights that they knew who their customer was, which is Mm -hmm. they went after a business traveler, first and foremost, somebody that was probably going to spend a little bit more because it wasn't their direct dollar necessarily. And then they converted them into a personal traveler as well by creating this really incredible experience. Mm -hmm. Um, They do greet you. And I do think that that blend of online, offline, they're a really interesting leader to look to and and how you actually use the app experience to connect it back to the online experience, to connect it back to the in-person experience. I love it. Yeah. What changes do you see on the horizon in the next six to 12 months related to customer engagement? 
I think it has to be AI. So I don't know if I would have said that six months ago necessarily, but I think it has just accelerated that conversation. And I think for me, I would say the way that I think about applications and use cases is really brought to life all of the ways that you can really use it. I think we've been talking about it obviously for a long time, but I think in the next six to 12 months, it will be a part of a lot of shopping experiences. And, you know, it's so easy to use so many ways that you can imagine that that it would work and, you know, everything from creating different types of creative for different people to being a virtual stylist to being part of the search function. It's, there's so many places that it's going to pop up. And I think this has sort of been a tipping point where we're going to see everyone's going to start to integrate it in a bunch of different ways. And I think it's going to be lightning fast in terms of how slow it felt like it was sort of building towards. We knew AI was something we were going to be using and we were talking about it. And then it was like, ChatGPT really sort of (laughs) light bulb. (laughs) And they're already starting to create a lot of those plugins. I saw them drop a few app plugins in the past 24 hours where, yeah, yeah, they're going to make it so easy to integrate, you know, into a lot of your current workflows. And there's really obvious ones where it's like, okay, I can probably get AI to write all my product descriptions. That's probably a really easy, quick win. But there's more innovative and interesting ones too. There's a guy that's using it as, have you seen Hustle GPT? He gave it $10 and is asking it to invest to see how much money he can make in 30 days. (laughs) So like it's, it's unbelievable the things that people are doing with it. And mm-hmm. I'm, it's going to take over a ton of different industries. And you're right. I think it just like, it accelerated in like 10 days versus yeah. like It was year. so fast. Yeah. It was so fast. And I, you know, it's sort of like people say Amazon changed people's expectations for shipping in a major way. And I think, you know, this is going to be something similar where the way that people want to interact with computers is just going to be different now once they sort of get used to doing this. And personally, I find myself just using it a lot more and and hearing people talk about it a lot more. And so it feels like it's it certainly is going to change things in some way. And it'll be interesting to see, does it work everywhere that we try it? And it it's pervasive? Or is it like, oh, no, really, we just want to use it in certain situations? And and so I think there's going to be a lot of rapid sort of trial and error in this industry, but also all industries, really. And, and we'll see sort of where we settle. It'll be interesting, I think. Are there any ones in particular that you're already starting to think about and ideate and use it for? Nothing we've actually started doing. We've started, we've started talking about a lot of different applications. Nothing that we're pens to paper, hands on keyboards doing at the moment, you know, but... Dot, dot, dot. More to come. More to come. I love it. Not dot, dot. Next time we talk, you'll be like, here are the 10 ways I've implemented, <laughs> you know, ChatGPT4 into what we're doing. Very cool. Exactly. Last question for you today. If somebody was to ask you how to do this themselves, what were the steps and recommendations that you might give them? I think, you know, something we talked about with Delta really is probably the, the best answer for that, which is it depends on who you are. And you need to look at your industry and your customers 
to really know what's the best use of data and what's the data that's the most important for you and and how to collect it and all of that. Because I think it's like, there are many businesses where free Wi-Fi wouldn't be motivating at all. And there are many businesses where personalized emails aren't that compelling because maybe it's a DTC brand and they only have a hundred different products. So you can only send so many personalized emails in that case. And so I think it's not going to be the same answer for everyone, but it is starting at, you know, who is the customer? What do they care about? What do they need? How could their experience be better? And how can we collect and use data to do that as sort of the first step rather than trying to just rinse and repeat things that other people are doing because it's not always the right fit. Honing on your customer, making sure you really understand them and building off the back of known use cases. Love it. For sure. Simple, elegant. Kristen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital-first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational. It's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting segment.com.